0: At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, and verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Well, let's listen now to the Word of God beginning in verse 1. Therefore, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die." But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. And we'll be also reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 35 through the end of the chapter in verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 35, let's hear now the Word of God. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. And the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And may he bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. And verse 2. Romans 5, verse 2. Uh, Here, Paul has established that those who have been justified by faith have peace with God through Christ. And he goes on, verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And for several weeks now, we've been focusing upon that last phrase, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul is going to go on to deal with the many difficulties and afflictions that believers face in this world and in the Christian life. You see verse 3, he talks about tribulation and the need for perseverance Uh, but Paul says that all of this in some sense is grounded not only in our justification being right with God and having peace with God not only in the gracious favor of God that is ours in Christ but it's also grounded in our hope of the glory of God which we've seen as a reference to heaven We rejoice in in a hope of glory. The eternal weight of glory. Uh, Paul speaks of the spiritual blessing of union with Christ in this world, in the book of Colossians, as Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's what he's speaking of here. And he says it's a cause for rejoicing. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God that will be manifested at the consummation of the ages, at the last day and in the world to come. The glory of God that will be displayed in the face of Jesus Christ at His glorious appearing. We've seen the the glory of God that will be reflected upon the bride of Christ. The glorious, spotless bride of Christ who also makes a glorious appearing with Christ when He returns. And we've seen the glory of God that will be reflected upon in embedded in even the resurrection body of believers we've seen that as we confess in the Apostles Creed we need to believe in the resurrection of the body our bodies are important God has made us body and soul the soul is crucial no doubt perhaps more influential more important in a certain sense Uh, But the body is crucial as well, it's inherent to our humanity. And uh, we have this body now, and the world, as we sang in Psalm 17, embraces the body and its current bodily appetites and pleasures and desires as the be-all end-all. That's all they've got, food, sex, money, possessions, inheritance, comfort. For their physical bodies. But as believers, we value the body not only for its usefulness in this life, but because we're rejoicing in the hope of a glorified body. That our bodies will be resurrected. Not merely resurrected like Lazarus, but as Hebrews 11.35 says, the Old Testament saints endured persecution because they were awaiting a better resurrection see, it's not just that the resurrection Christ returns and raises us up to be as we once were, but it's a better resurrection. We've seen that it's a superior resurrection. As Paul repeatedly points out in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is the second man, the last Adam, the superior Adam, the final Adam, the consummate Adam. And it's not only that He gives us a body that's superior to our vile body, Philippians 3.20, but also it's conformed to His glorious body, which is superior to the body of the man of dust, to the body of Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, as we saw several times, I'll just point it out by way of review, it identifies the body of, of the first man, the dust body of Adam, as that body that was formed and shaped in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. So 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. That's Adam before the fall. That's the natural body that Paul contrasts with the superior, celestial, heavenly, spiritual oriented body that we will receive in conformity to the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we, we talked about the fact that this is, uh, this is a confessional teaching. Confession of Faith 32.2 At the last day such as are found alive shall not die but be changed and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other although with different qualities which shall be united again to their souls forever. So it's the same body but with superior qualities. That's what Paul is getting at in First Corinthians 15. Superior to Adam's pre-fall dust body. Nothing could be more clear in the writings of Paul. It's a better resurrection. The believer's glorified resurrection body will be superior to Adam's pre-fall dust body, and we said this is the case in at least four ways. We saw first that it's a spiritual body, and its spirituality exists in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has become a life-giving spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 the passage that we just read, he, he contrasts the natural body that's sown and the spiritual body that arises. Uh, verse 45, it's, he says, it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And I want to emphasize this, the word life there, what's that referring to? When it says that Adam became a living being, that's referring or at least inclusive of his physical life. God breathed the breath of life into the body that he had formed out of the dust of the ground and he became a living being. In fact, similar language is used of the animals and so this is dealing with the animation of Adam's body by way of his soul. So the emphasis, though not exclusive, of course, God gave him a soul, but the emphasis of the life here is physical life. And Adam procreated with Eve and produced uh, eventually Seth and on down the line. We all descend from him. And so we've received life from him in that indirect derivative sense. Uh, But the last Adam is different with respect to his spiritual seed, of whom He is the firstfruits from the dead. And now, He at the resurrection will raise up in glory all of His spiritual seed to populate uh, the new heaven and earth, the, the new land of our habitation, even heaven itself. And the way in which the, the last Adam relates to His people is that He is a life-giving spirit. Now again, that word life what does it refer to? It's not talking about spiritual life. Certainly not exclusively of spiritual life, but the context here is that He is the giver of physical life to His people. That at the resurrection it is Christ, the God-man, who raises them up. Who, as it were, gives birth to them out of the womb of the grave. They're brought forth. He's the firstborn from the dead. They're Born. Every believer at the second coming is born from the grave. Born into this new resurrection life. And of that physical life, when we speak of a physical bodily resurrection, this is telling us of that physical bodily life, the second Adam, the last Adam, will be the one who imparts and sustains that life. Even as he relates to the new heaven and the new earth, as the sun of righteousness, as the, you know, the, the source of light. Revelation says there's no need of sun or moon, but the lamb is the light thereof. Christ supplies the light, the heat, the source of all life. And, and it's no less true of the glorified, resurrected bodies of his people. The word life there is referring to physical bodily life. Christ gives not just spiritual life through regeneration. We have that now, but there's coming a physical bodily resurrection life that flows directly from Christ in the world to come. That's the context. Paul's not talking about spiritual life in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about physical bodily resurrection life. And so we said that Christ is a life-giving spirit. God is spirit. And so the divine life of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is spirit, that divine uh, spiritual life of the Godhead, becomes incarnate and is made flesh. And through Emmanuel, God with us, God communicates life through that human nature unto all for whom He died and rose again through His resurrection and through the resurrection at the last day, He imparts that life and sustains that life in this unique way. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it calls Him the bread of life, the water of life, the fountain of life, the light of life. It's more than just He sustains my soul, but in eternity, our bodies will be, if we're believers and we're in heaven, they will be directly sustained by the God-man Christ Jesus. And isn't this what Jesus was saying in John chapter 6? John chapter 6, so often we read verses like the ones included here, and Jesus can say something over and over and over again, and we don't pick up on it, uh, despite the repetition. But John six thirty eight, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. What is the main theme of the bread of life discourse? Well, there are many significant themes, but at the heart of it is the resurrection of the dead. When Jesus says He's the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the bread of God, the living bread, and that you need to eat and drink Him and He gives eternal life, what's the emphasis? It's not that it's excluding spiritual life, but notice, Again and again, verse 39, verse 40, verse 44, verse 54, again and again he says, and I will raise him up at the last day. And I will raise him up at the last day. And I will raise him up at the last day. When he says he's the bread of life, he's not just saying in this life, I feed your soul, but he's saying, I am the source of all physical and spiritual life. And so, at the last day, I'm going to raise you up with resurrection life. And just as surely as your resurrection flows from me, even so the continuance of that resurrection life will flow from me. Even as bread sustains the body, I will sustain your body. I will raise you up at the last day. We must eat His flesh and drink His blood. Now, of course, that's speaking of faith. That's speaking of receiving Christ, His person, His work on the cross. It's symbolized in the Lord's Supper. But my friends, Jesus connects that idea of receiving Him as a source of life. Not merely with spiritual regeneration or the spiritual resurrection of our soul, but He includes the physical resurrection of our bodies and the continuance that we have therein. Uh, he is the vine we are the branches understand what he is to your soul now he will also be to your body in the world to come it, we could go to John 15 we could we could hopscotch around the scriptures this is a clear teaching of scripture uh, secondly we we alluded to the fact and so I won't dwell on it too much this morning that the uh, glorified resurrection body of believers will be superior in terms of its suitability to its new heavenly environment. Again, in the world to come, there won't be a sun or a moon, there will be Christ supplying it all. And in that unique heavenly environment, which will be radically different than what we experience today, uh, we're going to need a body... That's not flesh and blood, a dust body conforming to the dusty earth, as Paul says, but rather a body that is heavenly, celestial, spiritual, conformed to the man from heaven, uh, suitable for that heavenly environment. Again, we, we read it, 1 Corinthians 15:40 40, verses 47 through 50. He links the type of body that will be raised up in glory with the heavenly environment that those bodies will inhabit. And so, we we made that point as well. But thirdly, moving on to to the third of four aspects of this superiority. Thirdly, the believer's glorified resurrection body will be superior to Adam's pre-fall dust body in terms of its suitability to its new heavenly activities and occupations. So not merely suitable to the heavenly environment, but it will be made suitable to our heavenly activities and occupations. Now at this point we need to be careful that we're not going beyond the Scriptures, that we're not being speculative. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 tells us that I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind or heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now in fairness, the very next verse says that He has revealed these things, these mysterious things, but you can see the balance there. He's told us some things, but not everything. And there's a good deal of detail in terms of the world to come that He simply has not revealed to us. Now we could busy ourselves for 10 lifetimes just studying what He has revealed, but we need to be careful about speculating what will be our activity in the world to come. We're not gonna be uh, sitting around sluggishly and uh, that, that's, that's not the image of God. That's not gonna reflect his glory if we're just sitting around. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be, uh, you know, pruning our vines and harvesting from our fig tree and some of the, some of the I would say, foolish interpretations of, of uh, the latter chapters of Isaiah. People thinking in heaven we're gonna be farming and things like that. Um, But but the fact is, we don't know all the details. We know we'll be worshiping God. We know that we will be increasing in the knowledge of God. That we will be seeing His face in terms of a beatific vision of His glory. We'll, We'll be able to perceive the divine glory, the divine attributes, the divine presence in a way that we simply cannot conceive of at the moment. As creatures, we won't be able to peer into the essence of God Uh, in a sort of immediate perception of who he is, because we're creatures and he's God. He has to reveal it, but he'll reveal it in such a way that the Bible speaks of it as face-to-face. And of course, we'll see his glory revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, the the Emmanuel, the God-man. God manifested in the flesh, and we'll see his glory reflected in the environment around us and in the believers that we inhabit that land with, and all of these things, we will be increasing in the knowledge of God. And of course, God is inexhaustible, so that in itself will last forever. It will never become boring. As one Puritan said, uh, in heaven, it will be uh, it, almost as if it, it just is a constant refreshment of everything. It, we will never get bored. It will never get old. Every, every second, as it were, is a new eternity. And it'll just be fresh and constantly invigorating and interesting. And so th- there's an eternal progress in the knowledge of God. And in the worship of God in light of the knowledge that we gain. We will be fellowshipping with those other brothers and sisters in the Father's house. Uh, we'll be communing with them. We'll be recounting God's glorious works on our behalf and His goodness to us throughout our lives and and His goodness to us in eternity. So there will be fellowship and edification and conversation. Um, Will there be tasks and assignments? Perhaps there will be. We're told that His servants shall serve Him. But again, we don't have a lot of detail concerning those things. It'll be enough to know that we'll be worshiping and fellowshipping and resting from our labors that we might grow in the knowledge of God. In other words, it's enough to know that it will be an eternal Sabbath. And that should remind us how crucial it is to value the Sabbath as we have it in this life. Once a week. It's something that ought to be essential and at the core of our Christian life because this ordinance of God prefigures and foreshadows our eternal delight and joy in the presence of Christ for all eternity. If we don't value the Sabbath now, why do we think that we're going to be spending eternity in a heavenly Sabbath? Now I realize there are good godly Christians that are confused by teachers that are confused who are also good and godly, but let me say this, Uh, in a Reformed church, we're not confused by those people, are we? We have the Sabbath. It's been given to us. We have it in our confession, in our catechisms. We hear it discussed in the preaching of the Word, the teaching of the Word. We have the Sabbath day. Uh, We're not dispensationalists. Uh, We're not confused by so many of these false teachers or, well, good teachers that teach false things on this issue. But, But we have it. And so, I I would urge you to examine yourself. Are you valuing the Sabbath that God's given to you? If there are those who brazenly violate the Sabbath and treat it as something that's unimportant, then that's a serious reason for concern about your soul. Let's let's leave the the confused dispensationalists aside. Let's ignore them for a moment and be charitable and gracious that they've just been hoodwinked by someone who should have studied more of the Scriptures. But, but you're hearing this doctrine. You have this doctrine. You have this ordinance. What are you doing with it? Those who brazenly reject the earthly Sabbath should question whether they're headed, whether they're headed for an eternal Sabbath. Are you resting from your labors and seeking to grow in the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ on this day? Are you decluttering it of all of these other things that get in the way? Are you engaged in the activities and occupations of heaven itself on this day which prefigures heaven itself? Our glorified bodies are going to be perfectly suited for that eternal Sabbath we will be able to enjoy the pursuit of God's knowledge, the worship of God, uh, in ways that we can't even fathom now. I mean, you could say, well, am I going to have to sit on a hard bench and hear long sermons for all eternity? The, the, the heavenly Sabbath is going to be far better. Now, I trust that we, we love the house of God and that we appreciate God's ordinances in this life, but the fact is, there are going to be so many inhibitors and so many hindrances that will be removed out of the way when we receive our spiritual heavenly bodies and we're able to engage in these blessed uh, occupations without distracting cares, without distracting thoughts, without our stomach growling for food, without, uh, you know, babies crying or children misbehaving or without all the different things, you know, you're sick, you're tired, again, you're sitting on a hard bench and your back hurts. All these things will be out of the way. Our bodies will be superior in every way. Even if you think of Adam and Eve worshiping God, we'll have even less distractions, even less hindrances in our eternal pursuit of God than they had. So, let's engage in these occupations now with hope that there's coming a day when we will be able to worship God without even the greatest hindrance of all, which is sin and guilt. Uh, My friends, as you worship God, as you sing His praises, and as you contemplate and reflect upon your own frailty, your own sinfulness, even your own distractedness in the worship service itself, and the, the highly inadequate nature of the worship that you're offering up to God, as you think about that, as I think about that, it can weigh us down. Now, there's a, there's a sense in which we can harness that and we can humble ourselves and we can get more out of the worship of God. There's no doubt. But these are things that burden us and that hinder us in this life. But there's coming a day when God will give us bodies that are perfectly designed for whatever heavenly worship looks like and sounds like and feels like. There's coming a joy and a delight and a pleasure. When the Bible speaks of pleasures forevermore at God's right hand in heaven, it's not as though we're going to be eating apple pie, right? It's not going to be an earthly pleasure. It's not going to be, wow, it smells really good and, it, and the food tastes good. And my friends, understand we will have bodies that are perfectly suited to our heavenly occupations. In other words, the things God's called us to do, He will make pleasurable. And I would dare say that the language that's used in Scripture of that pleasure, the river of His delights, would suggest that we will receive bodily pleasure even from our spiritual exercises and that we will be filled, as it were, with joy and gladness. Uh, To to a heightened extent, psychosomatic delight uh, in ways that we can't even comprehend. Now, of course, there are certain activities and occupations that we definitely won't be engaged in in heaven. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 30, the skeptical Sadducees come to Jesus to try to trip him up with uh, a a ridiculous question about... um, a woman who was married to seven men, and you know, who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? And they're, they're just scoffing. And, and really, just like most scoffers and people that try to refute the Bible, within a few moments, you, you pretty much can tell they have no idea what they're talking about, and they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And that's what Jesus says to them. Uh, verse 29 of Matthew 22, he says, You are mistaken. Not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, that's not saying that believers are not going to have a body, in the sense that the angels are um, spirits without a body. But it is saying, in the specific sense of what he's referencing here, that believers, like the angels, will not marry and will not be given in marriage. There will not be in heaven, there will not be marriage. There will not be procreation. There will not be individual households of parents and children of different ages and degrees of development. All of these things will be done away with. The, the family as we know it, in terms of marriage and children and parenting and all these things, will be done away with it will be far better we'll have the family of god we'll be married to christ it will be infinite enjoyment of of proportions that are so far beyond what we enjoy in these things in this life Uh, but there will be no marriage and no giving in marriage and therefore we need to recognize that our heavenly bodies as most commentators say on this on this particular verse our bodies are going to be adapted to that environment. We can't be dogmatic or or, uh, honestly, I don't don't think there's really any biblical reason to think that our bodies in our glorified state are going to have sexual organs and are going to be, you know, have a lot of the the things that we have now that will be of absolutely no use in the world to come. Maybe they will and they just won't be used. But again, um, usually God has a design and he designs us for what he's called us to do. Um, This is something that's referenced, you can see the handout that I've made available on the internet and I've passed out here before, reform.com forward slash handouts, you can see the the various commentators on this question from the reformed perspective. Um, There's another aspect here, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13 according to most Reformed commentators and Reformed theologians, suggests that uh, even as the Scriptures tell us that we will neither hunger nor thirst, that there will be no need for eating and drinking. Uh, First Corinthians 6 verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. So he, he's, he's saying here, God's gonna destroy the stomach. He's going to destroy the stomach. He's going to destroy food. Uh, now you could say, well, you know, may, maybe, maybe that means something other than what you're saying, but I would encourage you, look up the handout that I referenced, uh, and you can find this is the, the standard interpretation among Reformed theologians, John Gill, Matthew Henry, Charles Hodge, Matthew Poole, John Trapp, Uh, Even in the Leiden synopsis, the theologians of the Synod of Dort, when they set forth their systematic theology, they uh, they say this, uh, quote, therefore from the glorified man is removed not only everything that comes from sin or that has the character of punishment, but also whatever pertains to man's animate condition by virtue of the first creation in the world. And so, Revelation 21.4 asserts not only that God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and that death shall be no more, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor grief, uh, all, but also that, quote, they shall hunger no longer and thirst no longer, and the sun shall not smite them nor any heat, uh, but also that God shall do away with the stomach and with food, 1 Corinthians 6.13. And also that in the resurrection, they will not lead into marriage nor be given into marriage, but they will be like the angels of God in heaven. So they connect these passages and say, uh, there'll be no physical appetites for food and drink, no need for that, no need to digest your food, no marriage, no giving in marriage and no procreation. And so the body will be adapted to uh, to this new heavenly arrangement. Um, Now, you say, well, Jesus ate fish after the resurrection. Yeah, but not after the glorification. Um, Jesus' resurrection body was not in its final form. And this is also a standard teaching among Reformed theologians. Louis Burkhoff, quote, "...but the ascension of the Lord was not merely a transition from one place to another. It also included a further change in the human nature of Christ." that nature now passed into the fullness of heavenly glory and was perfectly adapted to the life of heaven end quote and uh, if you again look up that handout which I've circulated before you can see similar quotes from literally a whole host of reformed theologians Uh, and so Christ at his ascension uh, was suited for glory he wasn't mistaken for a gardener when he appeared to John in the book of Revelation. He was glorified. He shone like the sun. So uh, in the resurrection we will be sons of God being sons of the resurrection. will be raised up and in a sense reborn physically into that world to come with a suitable body for those heavenly occupations. Fourthly, The believer's glorified resurrection body will be superior to Adam's pre-fall dust body in its perfect and unchangeable liberty from even the possibility of enslavement to sin or its miserable consequences. Its perfect and unchangeable liberty or freedom from even the possibility of enslavement to sin or its miserable consequences Uh, Adam and Eve had the the pre-fall dust body and they had the possibility of sinning and it was possible for their physical appetites in craving the the forbidden fruit to lead them by their own choice uh, in the wrong direction and they lost everything and they were enslaved to sin and to the miserable consequences thereof that will not be possible for believers in their glorified resurrected condition in romans chapter 8 the apostle paul makes reference to this freedom this liberty uh, th- th- there's no greater freedom than uh, losing the possibility of losing your freedom right people look at heaven sometimes and they say well we'll be restricted we won't be able to sin yes but see That's the greatest freedom imaginable because sin is enslavement. It will be impossible for us to fall back into that enslavement to sin or to the miserable consequences of sin. We will be perfectly and unchangeably free from that possibility. Romans 8.19 For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. It's important. We're going to look at the the connection here between freedom and liberty, but also this idea of the sonship that will be fully manifested in our glorified resurrected bodies. Sons of God, sons of the resurrection, as as we learn from Luke 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 23 Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, in other words, the redeemed inheritance that Christ has purchased for us through his redemption at the cross and through his resurrection, this redemption inheritance, this sonship, this unchangeable freedom and liberty will be conferred upon us at our physical bodily resurrection and glorification at the last day. And that will be final. We will have a glorious liberty. Notice, we're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Here we're told that the freedom we will have will be glorious. It will be weighty. It will be far beyond what Adam and Eve had before the fall, and arguably beyond what they could have had. That's another question. Uh, But we will be free, we will be liberated. We will be redeemed, purchased by Christ. And Revelation 21, 7 and 8 tells us that heaven will be a world of perfect holiness. There will be no sin, there will be no defilement, there will be no sin and no sinners in heaven. Every believer will be made perfect in holiness. Revelation 21, 7 and 8, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now Jesus tells us that a servant does not remain in the house forever. Uh, But if the Son of God sets you free, you're free indeed, and as a son you remain in the house. John chapter 8. Sonship and freedom and uh, perpetuity are all connected. And so you notice here, uh, God will be the God of the believer and we will be his sons, his children. In other words, as a child reflects his father, so we will reflect the glory of God, partakers of the divine nature in all of God's communicable attributes of Goodness and holiness and wisdom and justice and righteousness and love and mercy. We will be His children. We will be, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, children of our Heavenly Father because of our holiness, being perfect and holy as He is perfect and holy and showing love as He shows love. We will be His children. We will be holy in conformity to His holiness. There will be no cowards and no cowardice. No unbelievers and no unbelief. And on down the line, we will be his sons and daughters, and we will remain in the house, never to fall again. Well, how do we apply this? How do we apply this glorious hope? Four things. First, do you believe in the resurrection of the body? Uh, The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Is that your creed? Do you believe in the resurrection of your physical body at the last day? You need to believe this. If you don't believe this, you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. It's essential to the Christian faith to believe in the resurrection of the body. Even the Old Testament saints, Hebrews 11 verse 35, even those who were persecuted and afflicted in the Old Testament, and God delivered some of them, but He says the ones that He didn't deliver persevered to the end. Why? Because of the hope of a better resurrection. People try to say, well, in the Old Testament, they weren't anticipating a resurrection from the dead. Yeah, well, tell that to Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. And and He shall stand upon the earth, and my own eyes shall see Him. Job expected to be raised from the dead. Though his body would be eaten by worms, he would be raised up. And we could go to passages in the Psalms. Psalm 73, uh, that hope of being received into glory. But the fact is, you need to believe this. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. Paul says if we don't believe in the resurrection of Christ and of the resurrection of believers, that we're of all people on the earth to be pitied. The most miserable. Because our entire belief system falls utterly to the ground. We must believe in the resurrection of the body. And it's interesting, when the apostles preached... The Gospel, they preached this doctrine. They preached it with emphasis. Even when they had a limited time to speak, they preached the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the body. And this is what marked out the Christian faith over against uh, so many other ideologies in the first century. Um, Acts 17, verse 18 Uh, We're told that certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection at the last day and the final judgment. Paul preached these things and people thought he was crazy. People in the surrounding culture. They were expecting, you know, what happens when you die? you're buried in the ground and that's it. Really, in some sense, very similar to many people today who have no hope of the resurrection, no hope of a resurrection body, no hope of a glorious new birth out of, out of the grave into eternal communion with God. They have no hope of this. Their bodies are just basically a rental car. You know, just drive it like you stole it, run it into the ground, whatever. Whatever. And, and they don't have a hope that the same body that they're living in now in substance will be raised up and they'll dwell in it for all eternity. Paul preached it in his day and it seemed strange and foolish. And he sounded like a babbler to these people because they had, had never perhaps heard something like this before. Uh, later on when he preached in the Areopagus to the philosophers, we're told that When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So people were mocking this, just like the Sadducees who came to Jesus with their convoluted question about the woman who was married seven times and who's she going to be married to in the resurrection, and they're scoffing and they're mocking just like these Greek philosophers. And Jesus says to them, if that's your outlook... You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's what we're left with if we don't believe in the resurrection of the body. Secondly, do you long for this? Do you long for this? The creation eagerly waits. Believers ought to be groaning and eagerly longing and waiting with hope and with expectation of the glorious liberty of the children of God of the redemption of our bodies. Jesus says that um, when you see some of these prophecies that I'm giving, when you see these beginning to happen, and you see that my prophetic word is true, then look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Jesus gave many prophecies concerning the people in His own day, the destruction of the temple, things that they could then see fulfilled and say, okay, if these things you prophesied about the temple being destroyed are fulfilled, then now we can be sure that the things you prophesied about the second coming will be fulfilled. And He, he says, your redemption is drawing near. Do you long for that? Do you anticipate that? As Paul in Philippians 3, are you eagerly straining and attaining and laboring if by any means to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Is that the purpose of your life? To live the Christian life and follow the path step by step unto resurrection glory. Thirdly, do you live in light of this doctrine? You're not just believing it. You not only long for it, but it affects the choices that you make. It affects your mentality, your priorities, your conduct. In other words, when you consider the fact that Christ has redeemed you body and soul and that your same body, though with different qualities, that same body is going to be raised up. You're going to be inhabiting it for all eternity. Do you then begin to view that body differently? First John 3.3 3 says that will be like Christ when we're raised up. And it says, he who has this hope purifies himself even as Christ is pure. Does the thought of the resurrection of your body in perfect holiness and righteousness motivate you to use your body in a pure and holy manner in this life? Do you realize the dignity of your present body? Uh, are you willing to offer it up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, anticipating that this body that you have, though you are perhaps aging and you've got bumps and bruises and blemishes and injuries and all kinds of things, but this body's going to shine like the sun? Your body will be glorious. It has dignity, it has importance, it has beauty, even now as you anticipate the greater glory to come. Jesus loved your body and gave himself up for your body as well as your soul. And will you unite that body that Jesus shed his blood for on the cross with a harlot? Will you cause those eyes that with Job you're anticipating, I'm going to look upon him with my eyes, and yet with those same eyes, you're going to look upon pornography, and you're going to involve yourself in greed and pride and uh, anger and uh, outbursts of wrath and all these various things, are you going to employ your body in things that are diametrically opposed to that glorious liberty of the sons of God? We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that even spending too much time with carnal worldly people who don't anticipate this resurrection, spending too much time with those people will cause many believers to imbibe and be influenced by that worldly mentality. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 1 Corinthians 15.32 says, do not be deceived. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What he's saying here, he says that other people are saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived if you hang around those people. I don't care if they're your immediate family members. Uh, There are many Christians who are living in a home where they're surrounded by ungodly, unbelieving family members and they could move away But they don't, and those unbelieving family members influence them in a worldly way, and therefore they're caused to stumble. Be careful of that. Be careful of unnecessarily putting yourself in the way of carnal people who are eating and drinking for tomorrow we die. They're living for today, living for the moment, living for sex and food and money. Don't be deceived. If you spend lots of your time with those people, it could be in the workplace, it could be in your friendships at school. If you connect with those people and you spend time with those people, that evil company will corrupt your good habits because they don't have the knowledge of God. And, and we need to be wise in our relationships that we're not influenced. And you say, well, but it's it's my mom and my dad. Yes, Jesus said for the sake of his kingdom, you should hate your father and mother. And there are times if the kingdom of God and your personal holiness is put in conflict with your parents or your siblings or your job or your friendships, you need to sacrifice those things or you're not worthy to be called his disciple. Are you living in light of this resurrection reality? Do you labor in light of this doctrine? Isn't it interesting at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, the crescendo of the personal application that Paul makes for the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Verse 58, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want you to think about this. We can't end the sermon without this. This is crucial. I have another point. We're going to cut that off, but this we need to hear. The application he makes is, are you laboring now for the glory of God now? There are things in this life that will not be in heaven. And you've got to be careful. Satan will use, if you're worldly minded, he'll use that to to mess up your Christian life. But if you're heavenly minded, he's going to come in and he's going to say, well, you're, you're, you're so heavenly minded. This is great. In heaven, there won't be marriage. There won't be parenting. There won't be work. There won't be this. There won't be that. So those things are unimportant. Go off in a monastery and focus on heaven. As Rutherford said, some people make an idol of the kisses of Christ. And they're disconnected from the everyday labors of the Christian life in this world. They're not taking what's happening in heaven and bringing it to bear on the earth as Jesus prays that we would do, but instead uh, they're, they're heavenly minded in a way that's not biblical. Paul says if you're truly anticipating that heavenly glory of the resurrection you're going to be present here now. If you're rejoicing in the hope of glory to come, you're going to be laboring for the glory of God now. You're going to discern the work of the Lord to which He's called you, and you're going to be steadfast. You're not going to move off to the monastery. You're going to be immovable. You're not going to be so heavenly-minded that you're not of earthly good. You're going to be abounding in the work of the Lord. In fact, true heavenly-mindedness motivates us to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, motivates us to prioritize how much time we spend with our family, how much time we labor to support them, the things that we need to do in this life and in this world. Heavenly mindedness motivates people to become deacons because they see their need, temporal responsibilities in the life of the church and they don't say, well, I'd rather be reading the pure. No, they wanna be deacons. They wanna labor, those that are called, in that field because they see the value of it even here and now in this tangible world. Psalm 90 uh, famously concludes and we're going to conclude with it by emphasizing the beauty and glory that's placed upon us in this life as a harbinger, as a foretaste of what is to come. Uh, Psalm 90 Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. You say, well, that's going to happen in heaven and I'm anticipating that and I'm in my prayer closet. Yes, be in your prayer closet, anticipate the beauty of the Lord upon you then. But this is saying that by God's grace in this life, the beauty of the Lord can be upon you now. As you're laboring, as you're raising your children, as you're laboring in prayer and instruction and discipline, and and, and as you're faithfully performing the tasks that God has given you, it says, establish the work of our hands, yes, establish the work of our hands. So, not just are you living in light of it, but specifically, are you laboring, steadfast, immovable? Immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we long for the day when we shall awake in your likeness and be satisfied with pleasures at your right hand, even pleasures forevermore. And yet, we also respect your timetable. And though we long for heaven, uh, we confess that in this life, you've given us a good heritage as well. We are content with your blessings here in this life and with the responsibilities that you've given us, the talents and opportunities that we ought to be utilizing for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, help us to anticipate the glory to come and the beauty of the resurrection and yet to be clothed in these things even now as we remain steadfast immovable, always abounding in that work you've called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.